Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second podcast of recording of this week, uh, even though this will be going out on Monday. But we are here again um, on Friday up at Beguile. Big ups to Beguile for letting us still uh, record here for free. Uh, no rent yet. We'll see. Maybe if this, the podcast takes off, we'll get some. Uh, they'll make us get some money out of us. But uh, until then, today we have uh, Ian here from the one and the only Uncle Nearest. Um, Ian's going to be talking today about kind of his journey through whiskey, along with the kind of runs parallel with mine in a way. We kind of started in the industry around the same time. But other than that, we're going to talk about a little bit of life, too, because he's a beautiful musician, has a great voice. I, I, I can only um, I'm be jealous right. of it. I'm all right. You're all right. As, as I guess what I always say when people say things this, like that. And this is Ian. But yeah, I'm all right. Um, no, actually, one time I was driving up to, I remember this moment very succinctly, um, that we were driving to a basketball game in college, and my friend's girlfriend was an opera major. Oh. And so, you know, me being So me, she's in debt and sad? Yeah, pretty much. I think she works on a cruise ship somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, still holding on to the dream. Um, but I started singing like in a fake baritone opera voice because on one side of my family is Italian, so obviously it's just right there for yeah. me. Yeah. And she's like, you actually sound better than half the guys that I major with. You know, that if we can just for a moment say that's a big problem in <laughs> Why? in the industry or rather in so like if you're if you're majoring in music the especially music industry, the whiskey industry. The 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 people who are getting their degrees in 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 classical voice, yeah. I would say there's actually a big problem where people are not that good, and they are getting into these schools because forty thousand dollars a year for tuition is is a nice little pick me up for that music school. Yeah. Um, so you probably did sound better than an entire freshman class. I think she was a junior at that point. Oh woof. <laughs> Oh, bless your girlfriend. Woof. Yeah, pretty much. But, you know, I, I, I stopped a singing career. I was in a band also for, like, one day in high school. But it was, like, a punk rock band. I think we were called Goy. <laughs> Is that even legal to do nowadays? I'm sure it's fine. I think it's funny that you worked for Koval after that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah I didn't even think about that. Man, the story continues to thread so nicely together. You know, I... A Jewish-owned company. Um, and and, and yeah. the Goy. Yeah, and the Goy, which we all were <laughs> on staff. But yeah, kind of where uh, kind of takes us into where Ian and I started uh, intertwining with whiskey, um, both yeah. at starting at Cobalt Distillery. What year was that? It was like 2015, maybe? 16? Or earlier than that. No, earlier than 15 that. 15 at least, yeah. I think I want to even say, no, it was definitely not 15. It was definitely 13 or 14. Um, Def- yeah, definitely. It, I don't know, was it 14 minutes? It might have been 14, but it, it's, it's, needless to say, yeah, the very first event I think you did at Cobalt was with me. Yeah, my very first day of actually working, I, I was hired to do event tasting and mm-hmm. event and, you know, grocery store tastings and retail tastings and things yeah. like that. And my very first event was to train with you at a 3D printer. That's right, yeah. Um, I still have that shot glass. I do too. Yeah, it's cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, which is actually, ironically, across the street from the company that I had quit. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, not to take the Caval job, but the Caval job came after quitting that company. Did you get hit by a car then, like recently, right after that? Right after that, yeah. almost near nigh, immer- nigh, nigh immediately. So I started with Caval. Well, let's go back further. Let's go back. Um, so my my this real is, start this in is the, the industry, WTF of whiskey podcasting. So yeah, what, what the <laughs> fuck? Keep going. Um, uh, my my real start in the industry wasn't with Koval. I I started to really dive oh. into what distillate is in that in that job. I started researching more. I got yeah. really into it. That was kind of what unlocked 
The passion. I hate to say something no, I, so flip. I remember you coming in and talking about like, all these cocktails you had made before and all this stuff and being really impressed because I was like, you know, I can pour whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do a really good drinking and neat. And um, it was cool because I had more of like the educational um, background, but you had all you had more, I guess, of the hands-on experience when it comes to making the cocktails. Right. So and that's kind of what I was getting into. Like really what started me in the industry was Cobalt. But prior to that, um, like you said, I, I have... I, I did study vocal performance in college, so I, I really did pursue a career in classical music, and I pursued it in a myriad of different ways, but I, I always looked at, at, at liquor, I looked at the restaurants that I worked for, I looked at the bars that I worked behind as a means to an end, a means to kind of support my life in music, um, which I think a lot of musicians did or do. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I was working at Koval where I really started to to dive deeper into the knowledge, to try and, and procure a, a set of knowledge so that I could be a little bit more viable in the industry. Yeah. Um, and and why I was at Koval, I so prior to working for Koval, I um, had a stint at a consulting firm, BCG, mm. Boston Consulting Group. Uh, was an office monkey. <laughs> And I did. I started as a as a general assistant for kind of the office. I worked at the facilities department, and um, while I didn't like change light bulbs and and handle repair requests, I did assist with the utilization of the facilities yeah. for the consultants. So like creating their their decks that they would use for their meetings, okay. uh, facilitating the actual procurement of rooms for meetings and things like that. And my role grew very rapidly there. Nice. Uh, within a short period of time. I was given a contract. Shortly thereafter, I was working with, um, specifically, there had been an LGBTQ plus organization that um, was built for the consultants. Okay. So that queer consultants of BCG had a had a space where they could interact, not only with their peers, but also with like partners, principals, and, and project leaders, those, those higher up individuals that... Um, otherwise might not be accessible to people. And there was a women's group and there was a a Latinx group. You know, there was all sorts of different groups for those people to have that kind of engagement. And uh, a guy named Brian Sims in San Francisco wanted to create a different group for non-consulting staff so that uh, queer employees of BCG at large, nationally, internationally rather, could have a space where they could discuss their career and and move forward. It was a really really exciting experience. And... Um, I learned in that in that moment as I was kind of pushing my way through that company that I was I actually missed music probably more than anything else and working in an office while that job was amazing it treated me so well yeah just wasn't what I wanted how long have you been in on music since then at that point um well were you still always kind of I was like I was peripherally in it at that time I thought I took the BCG job to, to have stability yeah so it was kind of the first time as an adult that I was really I had benefits. I had a salary. I had. I'm still, I had a, I'm still waiting for that life. I'm still waiting for that life too. I left it, <laughs> but it was the first time I had that, and I thought I had chosen stability, yeah. and that I would <clears throat> fill my life with music elsewhere. But what I didn't have at the time was a completed bachelor's or a completed master's. Okay. And I, my 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 bachelor's was a was a, a funky situation, and I just needed to finish it. But my master's was a, was something I had always wanted. Just for myself, I was yeah. a, it was a it was a, a box to check off on the life list. So I quit that job to get my master's, and I was looking around at the world, uh, and I needed a job. I didn't get into the master's school of my choice. Got blackout 
drunk. Like, I was way too old to be that annoying, but I got <laughs> abysmally drunk, and I woke up to, um, like, a $300 Amazon bill that I had just bought cocktailing tools, cocktail ingre- <laughs> uh, recipe books, books about whiskey, books about distillation, books about spirits, and uh, I had emailed Koval. So you were drunk shopping? I was drunk shopping and drunk applying for jobs. That's the best way to do it. I, I guess so, because it worked out. Because, you know, if you don't hear back from me, you're like, did I even apply for that? I don't, even, I even, remember I, I don't, I don't even, even remember. remember. And I only remember, actually, because I got an email a day or two later from Koval that says, yeah, we would love to interview for, nice. for a position. We have a part-time position available. Great. And so I thought I was going into Koval thinking to myself, I'm going to get my master's. This is part-time. Gotcha. How perfect. Yeah, very convenient. Yeah, very convenient. And so, um, and then you met me. You're like, and then I, said, I have to and quit then I now. <laughs> I have now. to quit right this second. Yeah. Um, I got. I started at Koval. Uh, that f- that month, I was offered a contract <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky, That's right. for yeah. like two months. Yeah. And so I said, you know, you hired me. Well, now I would like a break. Yeah, it was funny because at the time I was helping training the new um, part-time demo tasters and which is a super important job here in the whiskey industry that's very looked over, I think, by a lot of people. But uh, you're the first person that was like, oh, we should keep this guy and, like, do more things. Because everybody else would, like, come with, like, oh, you didn't read anything about the company. Um, and they'd be saying, like, this, has, this whiskey will really put some hair on your chest. Like, that was their pitch to people at demos or, like, very important events. And you're just like, uh... Why don't you just take a back seat today? Just take a back and seat. And then I was like, oh, then I heard it, you were moving. And I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, and it was a short time. Uh, yeah. So then I come back, and I'm going to my next event that I was I was scheduled to to taste at. And I was hit by a car on the way. <laughs> <laughs> like immediately. And then you died. And then I died. Oh, and this gosh. is the ghost of you. Yeah. So while that while Koval was my start, prior to that, I did have experience in yeah. in restaurants, and I and I did I did work with people who taught me about product and product and how to utilize mm-hmm. spirits and drinks, how to sell drinks to mm. customers, you know, how to talk about drinks, like yeah. how to talk about what a person wants based on some some bullshit description that they give you. So you like basically this is right around the whole beginning stages of the craft scene, kind of exploding. Kind of, yeah, right. This at 2010. Yeah, exactly. 2010. Which so many of us come back to in these conversations and any of us in this industry, too. It's like, oh, yeah, we kind of, like, really found our way about 2010, 2012, and 14, you're like, this is sustainable. Yeah. And all uh, while I'm learning all this, all, all the while I am thinking to myself, I am an opera singer. Mm-hmm. I have to be an opera singer. I want to be an opera singer. That's what I told myself I had a, uh, a five-year corporate job too it's like not opera singer but just i'm a photographer i'm a creative and here i am like traveling across the world doing these event planning work for a fortune 500 company that's ends up like basically they're robbing houses from people because they're a bank and that's what banks do (laughs) Um, especially right around that time yeah oh yeah this is is exactly yeah and this is the response to that one was like no we're like the good bank and uh, we don't do that to people in this whole thing basically the five years of work i did it turns out it was pretty much like half it was a scam you're like that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, no one's a good guy. But, yeah, the whole time I was doing it, you know, I bring my camera with me anywhere I travel because I travel three to four weeks a month. Oh, yeah, a month um, to different cities. And I saw the entire world because of that job, which is the reason why I kept doing it. But I was always like, yeah, you're a creative person. Like, and I have these little freelance jobs along the way doing, like, a, a beer logo for some, like, brewery club or something like that. And it hold you over a little bit. But when you go, like, a dry spell of, like, two, three months without any do- anything creative and you're just working – it's killer. It, 
it, it's, 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 it's what soul crushing is in my, def- my, my head. Right. And you know, I, I want to kind of talk about that too, yeah, because there's please. lots of people, there's lots of people who hear like myself, like and I talk about music or like you with yeah. photography. And it's really nice to talk to someone who is a creative, who understands the, the undying need to do it. The really? Undi- it truly like, is. It's a, it's a, it's a true, it's truly is a drive. The things like, like my job at BCG, I can tell you that I absolutely hated it. Yeah. I, I did not want to be a part of it. I got to a point in it where I couldn't tell myself that I did want to be a part of it anymore. But it was a wonderful job. And the people who are doing that job or people doing jobs like exactly. it have very happy and fulfilling lives. Yes. Um, it's just, it wasn't the environment that I thrived in. It wasn't the group of people that I necessarily wanted to be around yeah. professionally. They're, yes. They were wonderful people. Great, yeah. Um, Been there. We, yeah, we, but we, you know, we, a lot of people talk about soul-crushing jobs, and when you're talking to another artist, it's very easy to kind of end there. I think it's interesting and probably important to talk about all those people doing it that are aces in life. They're, they're, they're very yeah. happy. Yeah. You know. They're cool with having going home to their house, um, having the two cars in their garage, having the kids when they come into the door, which is great. Yeah, I, I used to... So one of my college jobs, this is just nothing. Uh, I was doing it literally just to, you know, go to college. Yeah. <clears throat> I worked at the Trader Joe's down the street on, on uh, Lincoln and Grace yeah. in Chicago. And there was a manager there. His name was Steggs. And I don't know what it was, but I had been work. I worked a lot of evening shifts, and I was also working overtime that week for some reason. And I was a student and a yeah. piece of... Sh- I mean... we we're the worst versions of ourselves at 22, no matter what. Yeah. Cause we think we're the best version we're, of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. So, so like a little, give me a little slack there. And I said, Oh God, I just cannot imagine doing this all the time. I yeah. got, I get out of here. And Steg said, I would work 100 hours a week. If I had to, I would, I would absolutely do this all the time. And it, it shocked me. He's a young guy. He, yeah. At that time he was probably in his early thirties. And I said, how, how could you say such a thing? working at a grocery store. And he said, I have a great job. I have a great paycheck. I own my home. I have a wonderful wife and I get vacation time yep. so I can go spend time with my wonderful wife. And I, that was a, that was a turning point in my life where I realized work didn't have to be the thing that defined me like music was. No, it's very important. Cause I think there's this, I'm, I'm typing here looking for this letter that it's a very, uh, famous letter um, from a dancer she wrote to one of her friends. Oh, here it is. Um, but it's just, it kind of sums up in total what, um, what an artist goes through when they're not creating art because that it's like some kind of depression that little sinks in. Maybe it's not like on the couch, you know, cuddle up, holding your knees in the field position, but it's definitely like some angst inside of you. And uh, Martha Graham, who is a... Oh, Martha Graham. Yeah, you know who she Martha is. Martha Graham, Martha yeah. Graham. Yeah, so she wrote this letter and I heard it on um, a podcast the other day actually this morning and it's, it, this is her letter to uh, Agnes DeMille saying oh. yeah, exactly <laughs> you know these people better than I do yeah. I just know the letter pretty much and I've heard the name Martha Graham before but uh, there is a vitality a life force a quickening that is translated through you into action and because there is only one of you in all time this expression is unique and if you block it it will never exist through any other medium and be lost the world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it, your, 
keep it to your or yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. You don't need, you don't even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open, keep it open and aware directly to you urges and motivate you keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. Yeah. 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 And when you're working like a, like a soul crushing job with nice people, it's, it's such a ambivalent experience. Cause you're like, I like going to work really cause everybody's nice, but this job is not rewarding whatsoever. Yeah, no, it's, it's just not fulfilling a, a, a primal need. And it's, uh, I, I feel like I sound so pretentious and I just don't care because no, it's, it's true. It's, it's true. And I, I hear you and like, there's a lot of people that we know. There's a lot of people in this industry. There's a lot of people outside this industry. Everybody in day-to-day life that is struggling through work, wanting to do something else, wanting to do something better, something more passionate towards them. Yeah, it doesn't even have to make you money. No, and that's kind of like, what's what I'm doing here with this? This whole project was like, I, A, I want to foster community inside the whiskey industry, and I want to talk to people that, A, I know, um, like you, and have awesome conversations, bring those conversations we've had over the yeah. years to everybody else that's inside of this whiskey industry, the spirits industry, or maybe they're complete novices to it, but want to know what really goes on because when people hear about our jobs, they think, oh my God, it's so cool. You work, in, you work for a whiskey distillery. You work for a brewery. It right. must be like, you must get drunk every day. It's like, I mean, like, yeah, there's perks like that every once in a while where we get to try cool things and maybe you have a day here where like a Friday afternoon at your office is a tasting through a flight of uh, some different bottles. Um, that happens, but the day-to-day is basically your admin work, if you will, um, yeah. that most people have. Right. No, most of my day is spent emailing and walking into bars and restaurants and, and praying to God that they think that my bottle is pretty. Exactly. Yeah, it's and like, then it's, when it's you, a real And then when you get rejected, what happens? You Well, you... Well, I'm I'm lucky that I I don't get rejected. I'm just too good at selling. No, no, I can reject it <laughs> all the time, and I part of it I think I can handle it is because I was a musician. Yeah, and I was wow, not, yeah, great. Yeah. Not just a musician. I was a I was a singer, and the 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 piece of art that I leave on the table when I perform or audition or yeah. request for a job is is literally my body. So when they say things like this wasn't as good. I didn't like how you handled this phrase. I think that you're, yeah. I think your top isn't solid enough. I think that you are overpressurizing your breath. They're not talking about just my instrument and my music. They're talking about you, my body. Yeah. yeah. And so there is a psychology to it that I think really affects people. So when I go to a bar and they say, we're not looking for new whiskeys right now. We don't have the time for this conversation. And I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my blood. <laughs> it's not my blood. Exactly. It's yeah. not my blood. It's, it's, I'm very passionate about it. But, yeah, as you should. But I can't handle that rejection, I think, because I have been rejected since I started my career. In music. Yeah, <laughs> and that really comes back to, like, I think what we've talked about with a few different guests on the show is that when you're out there as a brand manager, people are buying you as much as they're buying the label. Totally. And you've been selling yourself musically for how yeah. many years? It's like, so that experience probably really does help you out. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I never even thought about this until right now, like with you and knowing your background and knowing you for the last four or five years, like yeah. how much that prepares you for nothing it. Can, nothing can hurt me more than I have been hurt in the past. Yeah. So bring it. Yeah. <laughs> Not even hurting your back on the bottling line? Oh, that was, that was rough. <laughs> that was really rough, actually. I, I we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's I, go. Let's go through like what your steps were like in um, starting in the industry. We both done a lot of different positions inside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, or we'll take us back to when you. So you went and got your masters. So I went and got my masters, and that's why I was at Koval. I was at Koval to to work through that time period, and I did take a, a break while I was finishing my studies for a little while, but I came back to it at the end. Yeah. And. Uh, 
this might be a bit of a sad sack moment. Um, needed a job yeah. after I graduated. You know, I just needed to live and make money. When I graduated, I had turned 30, mm-hmm. um, which is not old, but no. it's definitely too old to not make money. So much so. I mean, you know, for myself, you know, just like to live. Yeah, like, right. I, I don't have... Just to provide for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah, just, just, just provide for yourself. You need to, you need to, you need to take your wares out into the world and you need to keep yourself going. So that was when I really started to approach Koval about more opportunity to work. Okay. And I was... It's about two years after you first initially started? Yeah, so this is 2017. So okay. this is not that long ago. No. Um, I was kind of hitting a wall there, mm-hmm. to be really yeah, I remember that. frank. Yeah. It was just there wasn't things available. They weren't going to interview me for that position. This wouldn't work. This would work. Yeah. And eventually, um, I wasn't put up for an interview that I had wanted. Uh, and at that moment, too, I was at a crossroads with music where I was getting rejected so much and so frequently that I... I, w- I was actually working at the store one day, mm-hmm. and I was thinking to myself, is, 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 am, I, am I choosing a new career path? Okay. Uh, and that was, and that's been, that was an ongoing conversation with myself, and, and then eventually with my partner, Nick, um, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's, it's, it will never end, probably. But <laughs> at that moment, I wasn't really getting any kind of attention from Koval, so I started to actually apply for outside of the company. Um, and I was given a couple opportunities, but one opportunity presented itself, and I got to be a part of the start of the newly reformed Romano Beverage. Mm-hmm. And taking that job, uh, taking that contract, looking at that what they were offering, when I was getting hired within the birth of the company and also just kind of yeah. my own career, that was a, an absolute decision to focus on whiskey as yeah. my career and, and w- w- liquor, liquor as my career. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us. Um, what happens to everybody, I think, who enters this industry, you go one way. You completely leave it or you're completely embodied from it and you're like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Remember a long period of time at least. And yeah. that's how I was. I was caught up in it the minute I became, it became like a full-time job or started getting paid regularly, I guess you say, um, inside the alcohol industry when I'm not just like when I was literally designing logos for some small breweries and stuff like that, that and the writing free for some websites. And like, I want to do this. I don't care. I want to be a part of it somehow. Right. Yeah. And my mom actually talks about this a lot because my mom is, is pushy, <laughs> <laughs> but she has a good point. You know, I, I, I really gave myself to, to one thing for so long. And then if there's another, th- another way in this world that I could be working in, in spirits is, is really, the only other place I could see myself mm-hmm. in this world, and um, so, so I started Romano. That's a it's a new distribution company. Uh, we talked a lot about what I would do and what I wouldn't do within the company, and I, I ended up selling a lot because it was a startup. And in all that time, as as my position was growing, as I was their their spirit specialist. Okay, that was what was on my because you're repping a few different brands. The whole portfolio. Yeah, the whole uh, oh, spirits, wine, the whole thing. Oh, you and wine too. I didn't even know that. That was really tough. Yeah, because remember, you probably were working there for maybe two or three weeks doing this position, and you came to the Cobalt store one night, and I was working late, and like you brought the whole portfolio, and you had me try it and At stuff. At that time, and it has kind of exploded. Yeah, yeah, and it's where you're really questioning like the whole sales aspect of it. All. Oh, I was, I mean, I'm not, <clears throat> I, have a, <clears throat> I have a district sales manager title now. Yeah. Um, and kind of the way that I, I reconcile that within myself is that it's not really direct sales. 
And I'm not necessarily worried about going in and pitching to one person for one sale all the time. Yeah. I'm really focusing on how, how are we doing throughout Illinois? How is this brand being experienced beyond just the bar or the, or the shelf okay. at, at any retailer? Um, so the job just has a little bit more, more body to it and more discussion around it. Because yeah. what I really liked in Spirits and what attracted me to my time at Koval, which kept me at Koval, what made Uncle Nearest a really attractive job offer, mm. which we'll get to in the story. I'm so sorry, listeners. Nah, uh, it's okay. Is the storytelling aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And that really, that really connected to me as a singer. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm going to talk about that a lot too. I realize. So sorry, guys. I'm going to say certain words <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but yeah, the storytelling aspect. I, I, what I loved about singing and what I loved about performing was telling stories. Yeah. And I, when I was a little kid, even I would tell stories, and then I would want to continue that story. But yeah. I would continue that story like a week or two weeks later. Okay. And then anyone who I was talking to, like my parents or siblings or friends and stuff, they'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" You like, can cuss. Uh, good. What the fuck are you talking about? And I would, and I would be like, don't you remember when I was telling the story about the astronaut who was growing bananas on the moon? And it was just kind of, that was always a part of yeah, my life. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that was, that's what kept me there. And working for Uncle Nearest is a brand that has a lot of story behind it that I want to tell. Yeah. And it's, I think that kind of like is really uh, emblematic too of what's happening, how whiskey is sold too, because a lot of our stories are folklore or their history that maybe uh, put your own spin on it. And some will say that marketing in America was built within the whiskey industry based on history. Well, I would even say that marketing around spirits, as we think of it today, was really built by the person, Jack Daniel. Yeah, could be. I mean, absolutely. He's one of the oldest figures inside of the whole whiskey industry. I'm sure we'll probably get into that too with the brand. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's, I was kind of relating back to the kid where sometimes when you think back, you can't really trust your memories. You, you start painting a picture of what happened as a child and you ask your parents, like, that's not really how it went down, but it's kind of how whiskey is sold. <laughs> it's absolutely how whiskey is sold and very differently. So than say wine or beer. Yeah. Uh, with beer, you have, you have some legends you have yeah. in America. You have some, some yeah. beer legends, uh, very few, a handful, a handful, you have some you have current legends now, yeah, living, le- living living legends, legends yeah, and you the have, craft part of it. And you have some long-standing brands, yeah, for sure, that have evolved and changed with the times that they've come and, and gone. Those in. brands just sell themselves now. I mean, those absolutely, yeah. So whereas whiskey, there are obviously a handful of brands that sell more than any other, that sell more than anything else combined, pretty much, probably. Yeah. Um, but there is a growing movement, just like in beer, where the story has to be told and what. A lot of the stories are coming from, too, not a lot, but some of them, they're resurrecting the family past and bringing it to the shelves now. Yeah, I mean, we, you kind of touched on this earlier, too. And the, the craft cocktail, craft spirits rebirth mm-hmm. or renaissance, I yeah. guess, so to speak, really did happen about 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially in this city. Especially in this city. Absolutely in this city. And you're you're going against, not, not so much today. Nowadays, when I'm talking to people who are who are consumers as opposed to colleagues. Yeah. I'm talking to people who have a, a better sense of what they want, what they do, what they okay. don't like. The story becomes a cherry on the top as opposed to being the foot in the door. Okay. Whereas, especially when I, right around when we started at Koval mm-hmm. and, and just when I started in the industry in general, when I was working at, I worked at Custom House Tavern for mm-hmm. a time. To talk about spirits, you really had to sell them on 
the idea of it because a lot of people were afraid to drink it because <sighs> brown alcohol is harsh yes. or uh, I get loopy with vodka or I need no, I don't want to go blind. Like any number of yes. stupid, that yes. was a stupid reason. Yeah, it's just uninformed reasons yeah. um, pretty much. And it was an uneducated, uneducated crowd 10 years ago. And to see where the cities come from now with the education or the educated amount of customers sitting there. Oh, the the buyer today is is probably mm. is almost as educated as some of the people selling it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would I believe that. And then the people sitting across from at the bar, their customers yeah. sometimes are even more educated than and both of them. All those people out there who are educated customers, thank you for doing your research. Now shut the fuck up and just order at the bar. <laughs> can you can you elaborate on that? <laughs> I just. I just think it's important that um, if you are a consumer to allow the mm. story to be told. Don't, yes. Don't, don't jump in okay. with your knowledge. Yeah. That was a very harsh turn left. <laughs> I, you should maybe. That's all right. I wish you edited. No, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, there's mm. times where you're at a bar and there's a rep there and they're promoting a product and it's a good product. I've had it happen with actually some of my favorite products before. Yeah. And people start, I don't want to say talking down to you, but a little bit of that. And I just let them finish, and then you kind of casually bring up how we, oh, yeah, I work in this industry, too. And then when they don't listen to you on that and they keep going and talking like you're a, a very much of a novice person, I get it. Um, but, yeah, as a customer, I just kind of let people just let, let it go. And then if you're having a good conversation with the bartender, it'll eventually come back to, like, totally. Yeah. Well, my thing was when I was behind a bar or when I was, when I was working with a customer and I would suggest something mm-hmm. and they would say, well, how do you make it? And trying to figure out if I make it the right way or yeah, their way. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, at the end of the day, dude, I make it the way that I have to make it at this bar, and you're going to drink it, and you're going <laughs> to buy it, and you're going to like it. Tell me how you like it. Or just tell me Pretty how you much. like it. Like yeah. it, it doesn't have to be... This is a very harsh turn left. It doesn't have to be about how smart you are as a consumer. No. If you just know what you like, just order what you like. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good way of putting it. And I think... Uh, did you ever do tours at Cobol? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because you'd get the, you know, smart ass customer sometimes on the tour and trying to show you up. And um, I just kind of thought it was funny when it was somebody who didn't even work in the industry. People that I couldn't stand were the engineers that knew more about the stills than you. And it's like, yeah, I'm not a distiller. And that was the first thing I said when I came into this room. And you can, I, I would honestly just call people out and be like, hey, do you want to give the tour? <laughs> and like, be just such a smart ass of people. Cause you're like, and you're like, cause you're interrupting the experience of the 15 people here that don't know anything. And that's who's here to, like, learn and right. just be a part of it. Well, also, too... I don't think I've ever gone on a tour of a distillery and said I work in the industry. I usually keep my mouth shut. I don't say a thing. It's not, it's not worth it because the person who's talking about what they're doing, be it a tour at a distillery, yeah. be it a demo tasting, yeah. be it the rep at... The Old Forester rep at the... F- yeah, bar, random, random, random. Doing a, doing a promo cocktail there. They are, they are speaking to the lowest common denominator. Yes. And, and that's... That's exactly what they need to do. They don't need to talk in no, these broad terms. Grand, no, you know these grand specificities of how to create and craft beautiful <laughs> little shots of whiskey. No, we need to talk about just if the conversation gets there, it's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's, that's, let it, let that's, it get there, and that's where we want. I think it's where probably every rep wants it to go eventually. But like, it's a rare person to find that sometimes, and you know, at the time, most of the time, to actually sit there and dedicate five minutes of conversation at a, at a demo, wherever it may be, to one single person. Um, for me, though, I've had t- doing tours previously, my favorite tours was when I just, like, ask me questions. And I'll yeah. just go from there. Like, Let's just go from there. Instead of I telling w- you, like, this... I will also say, in all my time dealing with consumers with products, with the products that I repped, yeah. um, the only people who felt the need to correct me were 90% wrong. <laughs> 
every time. 90% right. wrong. I, the only time, like, in telling the story that I have with Uncle Nearest right now, I, I have a... It's, it's a really it's a really difficult story to tell in some ways because yep. of some of the circumstances around the individual. Um, you have to be sensitive about it. Definitely. Um, the only the only people that have ever tried to correct me, tried to challenge me, tried to <laughs> to tell me that I'm wrong, have always been wrong, and probably like fifty plus white men. Yeah. The only time. Yeah. Other than that, everyone is just willing to like take their notes and do their research later. Yeah. And that was kind of one thing that, uh, Harrison and Wilson and I were talking about on a podcast a little, like two episodes ago was like being wrong is awesome. It's fine. Yeah. It's it, being wrong. I like it sometimes or not, not, not knowing asking the question. Well, yeah. I, I, I try not to like, you know, I speak pers- out of turn and prove myself to be a jackass. I mean, it happens every once in a while, yeah, but we, we all have a little jackass. <laughs> yes. Waiting to come out and have a have a field day. Yeah, and what kind of we got on this conversation about that was we were watching we were talking about commercials for large distilleries being on TV, and the family history is not even correct on it. And you're like, oh yeah, it's and you're really weird. and you're like, do they know that? Is that intentional? Are they trying to recreate it or skip? It? Maybe it's not the time to obviously show it with the millions of dollars you're investing into a commercial into a thirty minute spot, thirty second spot. But at the same time, wouldn't you want to get? the accurate amount of, you know, I guess, pace or storytelling to it all in that 30 seconds because there's a lot of consumers that know the stories. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of blogs out there. There's, there's a, a lot, lot of podcasts out there. There's you a know? lot of stuff out there. Yeah. There's a lot of ways you can find out this information. But being wrong, I think, or asking them the questions isn't a bad thing. And just Isn't it one of the listening. highest planes of, of consciousness? Yeah, right. You can be uh, ignorant, ignorant, mm-hmm. where you don't know that you don't know. Yes. You can be intelligent, ignorant, where you do know that you don't know. Yeah. And then you can be intelligent, intelligent, where you do know that you know. Yeah. Um, and being, you know, that's, that's, that's that second plane. Like, mm-hmm. if you know that you don't know, that's cool. Yeah. Well, how do you approach that when you're, you know, out there selling your product and maybe you're, you didn't know something about it, a bar you're in or another product's on the shelf, something like that. It comes up in conversation. You don't know. But, but I don't do know. Do you address it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, I think, I, I hope my time with you at, and when we work together, I, I portrayed myself as someone who wants to learn because I oh, desperately yeah. want to learn no, all the time. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about too. I mean, just kind of get another tangent real quick. We'll come back to it. Is that you always ask me like, what book should I read? What blog should I read? And I'll give you a book and you're like, I read it. What's next? I'm like, you just got it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a quick reader. I'm yeah. a quick study. Yeah. But no, I, I'm, uh, I don't even know if, I, if I'm conscious of it. If okay. I don't know something, I'm really quick to figure out what it is. Okay. Or I, or I want to figure out what it is. Um, so if it does come up in conversation, now the opposite when I'm discussing someone and someone tells me wrong and I'm and I'm sure I'm right, that's a that's a little more difficult yeah. a situation to deal with. Okay. Because, well, you know, it's, you never want to. I come from a hospitality background first. Like yeah. In my in my work, when I was just finished my undergrad in 2009, I started working at a hotel. So I learned how to talk to people from a place of deference. Okay. I was also raised by a Roman Catholic, so I mm. always come from a place of deference. Welcome to the club. Yeah, genuflection is a thing that I am good at. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I so I will always defer. I try not to when I'm talking to guests, for instance, like is a silly thing. I try not to utilize negative terminology. Yeah. Like if someone says to me, "Can I buy this at X Y Z liquor store?" Mm-hmm. I try to say, "No, you can't." I try not to say that. I try to say, "It is available at." 
ZYX. Yes. Unfortunately, it's not yet there. That way, you start with a positive. Like these, like little things, where I'm always trying to steer the conversation in a positive way. Cool. And when somebody's telling you that you're wrong and you are 100 <laughs> percent not wrong, that becomes a that, that was almost like a like a like a brick wall in the path of Roadrunner. Do you experience like, that a lot? With with this guy, a little bit. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, let's get into that. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. Hard to go into. So yeah, talk about Uncle Nearest, your newest product that you're working for. How you even started representing that too? So going back. Cheers, by the way. That's what we're drinking. Cheers. Yeah. 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 Let's try some. That's the latest cheers in the podcast that we've had so far. Um, a little over thirty minutes in. We usually get you're out the front, but I feel. I feel we're, like that's an accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a winner. We've been both drinking beer, so <laughs> now we're now we're going into whiskey. I'm having the new uh, the newest Beguile release, which is a stout of chili and fire. Eh, I'm not holding hundred percent. Spice and fire. Spice and fire. A stout of spice and yeah. fire. Play of words on Game of Thrones. Um, it's a uh, delicious I'm chili spell. The farmhouse with peach and honey. Ooh, nice. Because I want everything I drink to be a treat. Oh, as you should. Yeah. Honestly. If everything I can experience in life is like having Skittles for the first time, then that's what I want to do. Taste the rainbow. Taste it. Yeah. Um, so Uncle Nearest, <laughs> beyond tasting the rainbow, <laughs> uh, I started at uh, I started with Romano, and we brought Uncle Nearest into the city. Okay. Um, we launched last summer was when I started to work with the brand as a distributor rep and was telling the story and engaging with people in the story there. And I was also the first, one of the first people in Chicago to really get to taste it because mm. I was working for the distributor. Uh, we brought them into the city f- to take them around and to get the ball rolling on distribution. And so I was one of the first people to kind of hear the story as it's being told today, as yes. it's being told post Discovery, yeah, and I mean that's a big part of this brand is heritage brand. Uh, yeah, the story itself and who Uncle Nearest is, how he's related to two hundred plus years in the whiskey industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, with the product Uncle Nearest, how I got started, um, they had approached Uncle Nearest, the Uncle Nearest team. Fawn Weaver is the uh, owner of the company and okay. founder of the company. She approached solely under Uncle Nearest, right? That's yes. the company's name. Yeah, so Uncle Nearest LLC. Okay. If you if you do your research, you'll see that we're a part of something called Grant Sydney. That is that is fun and her husband Keith's like umbrella investment yeah. company. So that's how they've funded Uncle Nearest. But okay. Uncle Nearest is an independent spirit brand. Uh, they approached Romano and they said, you know, we would like to we would like to talk to your spirits reps about a position with with Uncle Nearest. So I was approached. Then in October, by their new VP of Sales in the Midwest, okay. uh, my current boss Chuck. Chuck hey Conkright, Chuck, shout, awesome. out, shout out to Chuck. He is really great. Uh, and he said, "So, are you interested in the job?" After we had been talking, <laughs> we were doing working an event together. He was just kind of like feeling me out, and I I actually said no. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I didn't think I was the right. I, I didn't think I was the right face for the company. Why is that? I thought that this is a, it's a new brand. Yeah, it has. A small star, it needs a better star. And I thought that somebody in Chicago who was incredibly well connected, somebody who maybe come from a larger brand mm. or had larger brand experience, yeah. uh, someone who had bartended in the scene a little longer than I had, because okay. re- realistically, my bartending experience is, is small. Yeah. Um, I thought that would have been a, a more beneficial fit okay. for the company. And also, I was thinking to myself, I am kind of a loyalist in what I do. And I'm like, I just started at Romano. <laughs> I didn't even make one year. Yeah. Taking the job with Uncle Nearest. So I thought, like, I didn't even make a year yet. I should make a year. That's a stupid thing to say nowadays. It but. sure is. It really sh- it really is. And not c- no fault to you at all. It's just that 
most corporations don't really have any loyalty to you. So well, that, not saying your also, company didn't. No, and like there's a there's a trend now too with with people around our age. Oh yeah, they're, they're, it's episodic careers, hundred episodic jobs, and that's okay. Yeah, get your experience, go in through your life, just save your money, do your thing. So that was my first response, and then Fawn came into the market in October that that, that same month, and uh, I was taking her and Chuck through some accounts. That was a that was a problematic week for other reasons too. But they sat down with me twice within that ride along day and had hour long conversations with me okay. about my career, about uh, my background, yeah. about my jobs, about what I think about whiskey. What's my favorite spirits to sell in the portfolio? That's a really awkward conversation when you get it from uh, owner of one of your brands. Yeah, but fortunately, Uncle Nearest was the number one at that at that time. It was that and a, and a cognac brand that I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and in talking to them and seeing how the, how Romano was growing in that first year, we got into that first year point, um, I decided that it was maybe something worth exploring. So I told Fawn in my car when we were driving to a restaurant, I said, are you actively pursuing or thinking about me in, in this position? She okay. said, yes. And I said, then I would like it. Nice. I then had a conversation with Chuck. We got, you know, then all yeah. the, like, the little minutia. The ball to, rolling. Yeah, the, the, the stupid stuff that you have to do to, before you take on a new job. Was that because of the brand itself or people you're potentially to be working with and working for? Yeah, uh, all of it. Okay. Um, the brand and the story was really, uh, yeah. really attractive and really appealing to Can me. you go into the story a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, answering the question, uh, the people I was working for was a huge part of it. Yeah. And lear- working for a distributor... I learned that I am a person who works better with a brand. Okay. Distributors worry about different things. Brands worry about different things. Yes. And I am more in line with worrying about those things. I I can relate. Yeah. So, but who is Uncle Nearest? Yeah, yeah. You ask. I do ask. The, the, the specter of well, the I know, audience. But the spec- yes, the audience asks, who is this Uncle Nearest? So, Uncle Nearest... Nearest is uh, a man by the name of Nathan Green, mm-hmm. who was born in 1820 in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he had a background in distillation and would eventually come to work on the farm of a Daniel Call to be the farm distiller. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bottle that we have on the table is Uncle Nearest 1856. 1856 is there because Uncle Nearest, while working on the farm of Daniel Call, while, while distilling, develops a process of filtering before aging mm-hmm. that becomes known as the Lincoln County process, which is the defining characteristic of a Tennessee whiskey. Yep. To be called a Tennessee whiskey, to be within the category of Tennessee whiskey, as per Congress, <laughs> um, you must be made in Tennessee, you must follow all the rules of bourbon, mm-hmm. and you must be filtered through sugar maple charcoal prior to, distil- prior to barrel aging. Excuse me. It's impossible to filter before you distill it. Is it though? Is it? I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, you're gonna lose some some mash, but yeah, yeah. you're gonna I lose some beer I'm out of there. Sure but yeah, somebody's gonna yeah. Comment about it. Uh, so that's that's. I don't that's know if one... enough people listen to comment on this. <laughs> one day, my mom will call me and she's like, "Your mom will worry about it." She'll be like, it. "The filtration process of Tennessee whiskey was not actually described by Ian." Goodbye. <laughs> it's nothing like my mom sounds or knows, knows anything about whiskey, but she drinks a lot of wine. But the day that you do get a troll, you call me and we will celebrate because that means you've made it. Well, if you want to go on a complete tangent from what we've been talking about <laughs> this, this afternoon, I got a bunch of trolls during the polar vortex. 
Mm. Yeah. So I Won't decided. Be more bored. Yes, I, I hope so because I don't know why I was getting any trolls with my 120 followers on Twitter. But uh, so I went running the morning of the first morning, the polar vortex when it was like negative 48 degrees. Oh, why would you do that? I just wanted to see how it felt. It didn't feel great. And to go take photos. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, because I live by the lake, and yeah. so the, the sea fog was amazing. And I knew it was going to be because it was a sunny morning. So I go out there, take photos, and run back, and I post a photo and, you know, put hashtag polar vortex, whatever it may be. All of a sudden, like, I'm just getting, like, all these Twitter responses like I've never had before in my life. And people are like, what's wrong with you? Why'd you do this? Why would we be stupid enough to run outside? And it's like, <laughs> and like, like one of our mutual friends texts me, and he's like, people are really mean. <laughs> like, uh, well, people are really mean. That's, yeah. that's the beauty behind the Internet. And it's, so it doesn't even stop there. The next morning, I take my dog with me outside, who is a Siberian husky. So he's fine. Yeah, she's just... She, she's fine. She, yeah, no, all good. So we were outside. It's like negative 26, so it feels like spring of that day because it's 20 degrees warmer. And let's post another photo. The Washington Post picks it up, puts it online. And people start just, why would you take your dog outside? It's so irresponsible. What's ter- You're a terrible dog owner. I'm like... um. It's a Siberian husky. This is her. Weather. Yes, she's digging holes she in the snow and climbing into the snow and living in the snow and just sunbathing. Literally, as I'm, my fingers about to fall off after about an hour of being outside. I'm sure. Yeah, it's like it's more responsible for me to have her outside on like a 77 degree day when it's hot and sunny than it oh, is absolutely. to be outside when it's negative 25. I always feel bad for like the the, the huskies. Yeah. Uh, the Malamutes, the, the Breeze yeah. Mountain Dogs of the world, yeah. like in, in Chicago summers where they had like this like wonderful winter for yeah. them. And now they're at the beach just like, why is it so AC, hot? AC, but but back that, But back to yeah, my stupid tangent of So in 1856, he creates the Lincoln County process. And uh, he defines the category of Tennessee whiskey as we think of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, around the same time, a young orphan boy about nine years old, mm-hmm. comes to the farm to work as a chore boy. And this is in 1856-ish? This is ish. Yeah. Ish. Um, you know, I've read the books, and I should probably be a little bit more on the ball with these dates, but it's it's not 1856. It's right, right around that time, though. Okay. Because uh, our story ends in 1866. So as, as this young man is working on the farm, he keeps asking Daniel Call, uh, what's happened down there in that in that barn house. Mm-hmm. Why is there smoke coming out of the call? Mm. What's going on? Inquiring minds want to know. Okay. And Dan Call kept saying, that's grown people's stuff. That's grown, <laughs> that's grown people's business. Don't worry about it. Eventually, he, was, he would take this young man down, yep. uh, introduce him to Uncle Nearest, okay. Nathan Green, uh, and say, this is Nathan Green. He is the best t- whiskey maker in Tennessee. Teach him everything you know. Mm. To the uncle nearest to, the to, uh, to this young man, and that's where their relationship starts. So this okay. young man uh, came to the farm about nine years old. To give you an idea, uncle nearest had a son of about the same age. Okay. Um, to give you an idea of like an age difference. Yeah. And they begin working together. Sounds like Star Wars. It does a little <laughs> bit. And as they're working together, this young man who was always incredibly small. Incredibly small. Mm. Uh, he uh, at the age of 13, 14, 15, he looked so diminutive and he took the whiskey that they were making and he was selling it to neighboring counties and state lines mm-hmm. but he was also selling it on the battlefields of the civil war where there was a shoot to kill order on anyone selling whiskey to soldiers uh. because they were those those two different factions of, 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 of the army were supplying their soldiers yes, with whiskey, with whiskey so they, didn't, they didn't want government it. supplied whiskey yeah, yeah exactly there was rations 
but he thought, well, no one's going to shoot a kid. <sighs> Even though at this point in his life, he's not really thought of as a child anymore because of, you know, yeah. what that age meant back then. Um, but he sure looked like one. Mm. And it worked. Mm. And he cornered the market and kind of defined how we thought, talk about whiskey marketing or spirits marketing in America today. He started, yeah. he started that trend with that, with that little move and kept kind of kept going within his career after that. So, uh, 1865, Uncle Nearest becomes a free man with mm-hmm. the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, continues to work on the farm. Uh, when he was working on the farm of Dan Call, he was actually working through a brokerage. So mm-hmm. he was, and this is where it's a difficult, more difficult conversation to have. He was leased to the farm mm-hmm. as a commodity. Yeah. And he had, had the skill of distillation. Gotcha. Um, so kind so, of like an indentured servant in a way. Not not really. Uh, just think of it like you could you could be owned by a farm. And yeah. You could work for that farm, or you could work for a brokerage, and those people tended to have a skill set that was a little more specialized. Okay. So that you were just utilizing that way. Okay. Um, he becomes a free man, continues to work on the farm, but Daniel Call, the farm owner was the preacher of the town as well. Mm. He also owned the general store. That was where the whiskey was mostly being sold. So he had, he had his hands in the community. He was yeah. a man of high regard. Uh, his congregation and his wife approach him. They're teetotalers. And they say, you have two spiritual callings. You better pick. <laughs> and he chooses his wife. Um, and he approaches the young man who had been working with Uncle Nearest, loans him $30, legend has it, <laughs> And he buys the still for $30. Uh, he hires Uncle Nearest. He makes Uncle Nearest the first African-American master distiller mm. on record in the United States. Yep. And then also makes him the first master distiller of the Jack Daniel distillery because that young man was Jasper Newton Jack Daniel. Yeah. Thank you for letting me be coy about it. Hey, you know, it's all your story, <laughs> man. It's all your legend. Yeah, so Jasper Newton goes by Jack Daniel now, uh, markets his company as such. Uh, Uncle Nearest would work through... Tennessee Prohibition okay. being enacted, and Tennessee Prohibition happened 10 years prior to American Prohibition. Yeah. Jack would move their operations from Lynchburg, Tennessee to St. Louis, Tennessee. Oh, right. St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, my God. St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> Correction corner. Uh, and uh, George Green, Nathan's son, yeah. would take over in the role. Okay. Uh, Uncle Nearest was his nickname. We're not entirely sure, but we think it's because he was the closest person to Jack. Okay. Who as an adult, was one was most certainly the largest employer in the area. All right, yeah, I never knew where the nickname actually came from, and obviously know a little bit of the story. It's hard to it's hard to pinpoint. Okay, if I'm being really honest with you. Yeah, and so like this is what heritage brands are really selling their whiskey on, telling these heritage stories, yeah. if you will. How much of it do you go into when you're going in, into a customer to talk about your whiskey? It really depends on who I'm looking at. Yeah. And what they're what they're giving me back. Okay. You know, um, I was at I was at Blind Barber. Yeah. Yesterday for an, for uh, a meeting. Okay. You know, not just a drink. And I was talking to Joe and Gina over there. Okay. And Joe knew the story kind of. Yeah. Uh, Gina knew it pretty well too. So I I just. I just told them the facts. I just said, Jasper Newton is Daniel. Yeah. I, I didn't necessarily so you have to... basing the... And you're sourcing the whiskey, right? Yeah. Okay. And you're open about that? Yeah. Uh, which is the right thing to do in this yeah, day and age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100% transparency is... It's only going to... It's gonna, one of it's our only company gonna, tenants. Yes. It's called well, radical and, transparency. And it's also only going to hurt you in the back. It uh, is only going to hurt yeah. you in the back. But, um, but 
are you kind of trying to make a mash bill similar to that, the whole style of it, honoring the whole process from 200 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What we, what we looked for was whiskey. Do you guys t- say who you source it from? Unfortunately, I, I'm, not, I'm not allowed yeah. to. Nope, just making sure, yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to say anything but like a cursory Google search. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. Um, no, so I, unfortunately I can't say, but it is a Tennessee whiskey uh, supplier. Yeah. And it's made in Tennessee. And it's made as close to what we can think Uncle Nearest would do. Okay. And the founder of our company, I talked about her a little bit, Fawn Weaver, she is at heart a researcher. She's an author and historian. Yeah, and her uh, story is an really... Entrepreneur. Yeah. She has a, an amazing story, and you can read about her and the company in this last month's issue of American Whiskey Magazine. Yeah. First woman on the cover. Big shout out. Yeah, big shout out. It was, she's she's really making waves. And no, I, I agree, yeah. it's a She's a great story. She has a, yeah, she's amazing. Um, but Sherry Moore, who is our master distiller, our, our head of whiskey operations, We'll be here next week, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's oh, going to be here for Whiskey For week. a little Whiskey Week action. Yeah. We'll, yeah. yeah. She's going to Woman Who Whiskey. Okay. If, if you would like to come see her speak, she is she is so cool. <laughs> no, I, it's like when I look at my calendar of, like, all the events as a freelance writer and photographer that I'm trying to, like, get into and all that stuff. And you're like, oh, can I get this one? Can I get that one? Are you doing press? And, yeah, it's uh, it loads up pretty quickly. but It does. Um, which is great because I'm trying to put together, like, a whole story of the week. But, yeah, please keep talking about your brand as I – So, um, so yeah, so she's, she's who's running our running our whiskey operations. So okay. she She is the one finishing our whiskey to bottle, and she is the one who's creating our own – our own distillate gotcha. as well. And we're doing things, there are things that we have to do. So does she go down to the company that you work with that sources your whiskey? Does she work with them or is she part of that company? She is not a part of that company. Okay. She's a part of our company. She's, she just works for us. Okay. Um, so how does that process work? Am I even you know, I, I don't have too much inside information on that. Okay, that's uh, fine. Just mostly because I haven't really asked that question. But what I can say is we own our barrels. We okay. have a lot of those barrels. Okay. Our barrels that we're bottling uh, are a minimum nine years old and at maximum Great. 11, maybe 12, but 11 is yeah. where we want to sit. And our single barrel is always 11. Great. So we have b- barrels aging, we have barrels ready to go, and we're also actively creating our distillation center okay. right now. So right. Our, our own liquid will be going into barrels. Uh, and I'm really excited for that. And what we had to find was a whiskey that was made in Tennessee had a nice high corn mash, yeah, and over you can, 85. You can really smell the corn on this, on the nose. It's, totally. It's really nice. It's, um, it's, it's smooth for 100 proof, too. I'll talk about that, because Sherry is really, really good at her job. Um, <laughs> Please do. We also had to find a company that was taking their whiskey and proofing it down and barreling at the lowest proof possible. And the reason is that's something Uncle Neris. Okay, yeah. Uh, but also, alcohol sugars aren't soluble in... <laughs> In alcohol, what waka waka, wood sugars, wood sugars aren't soluble in alcohol, but they are soluble in water. Yes, so we are thus creating a better bridge for those for those compounds to make it into the final whiskey. Okay, so you taste a lot of vanilla, you smell a lot of vanilla. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, yeah, that's that's because of that. There's just more wood sugars coming yeah. in over. Yeah, uh, sherry, as somebody who has been working in the industry and innovating in whiskey herself for quite some time. Uh, brought to us two methods of filtering, one through coconut husk carbon mm. and one through diatomaceous earth. So both happen at the end of okay. F, F, F maturation. And those are really good methods to pull out fatty and amino acids, yeah. which are a huge contributing factor to 
to tail cut the, bar- the barrel aging process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then also just that acrid bite mm-hmm. you get. Yeah. So it pulls out negative congeners from maybe the tail. It pulls out those fatty amino acids from the barrel aging process. Okay. Uh, and just makes for a smoother whiskey experience. And this is all before barrel aging, correct? This or is after? all after. After. Okay. We only the only filtering done to this whiskey prior is through the yeah the Lincoln County process. Gotcha. Yeah. This is so this that's is what I'm going to clarify. I wasn't sure if you're doing before or after. Great. No, 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 okay. All after. Um, so that's. That's what we do. That's unique to us. So you're trying to pull more of that tails cut out of there, or we're just, well, you know, ma- we're, maintaining that so the bite's not too harsh at the end. We wanted the, we wanted the smoothest whiskey possible. Okay, so you do. We wanted the wood sugars to really shine. Yeah, which wanted, I, they do. It was almost like a mapley kind of taste to this totally. whiskey. Yeah, and we wanted the corn to really shine. Great. It was. It's supposed to be high corn whiskey as. As per Uncle Nearest method, yeah, it's supposed to be nice and vanilla-y as per Uncle Nearest methods, and so we wanted to utilize as much of what we could we could piece together historically mm. and create something because we are using someone else's distillate. Is there documentation of his process at all? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. There's there's information out there. Great. There's only so much we can say legally because of who our source has asked us to, yeah. to do that. Well, and there's a uh, the time. Go dating back to 1856. That's really when documentation was just beginning. Oh yeah. Like people say, oh, it was an old family recipe, but 300 years old. Well, it's like some of the first recipes really weren't even out until like the 1820s, 1830s, and those basically just said a lot of rye, a lot of corn. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of those, a lot of the, what you're talking about right now are yeah. people taking their grains that didn't get sold. No. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's basically what how bourbon, how corn whiskey began is that hey, we have all this corn left over, we're not going to throw it away, not make any money of it, so we're going to distill it, drink yeah. it ourselves. And sell it and basically use it as bartering tools and as an economic resource in the old frontier. Totally. Totally. And then that's why Uncle Nearest's story is kind of just now being told in in such specific terms. Yeah. Because unfortunately he didn't get as who he was, he didn't experience the same kind of record keeping as other citizens at the time. Yeah. And record keeping wasn't even really all that sophisticated. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not yeah. at all. No, not, not at all. And that's kind of where I mean people have that whole if if the, if the record keeping is right, if all the data is correct, like Jack Daniels was basically 14 years old when he would have registered for a distillery. So people are like, I'm not going to ask you to get into that at all. Um, but, you know, it, but whatever. Like we've gone back to on a couple times um, so far through our conversation is that a lot of what our marketing is based off is folklore and history and the way we yeah. spin it. Yeah, and, that's, and there it, is if you're looking for a book. Yeah, there's a book out there called Jack Daniels: The yeah. Legacy. Yeah. And it, it really highlights cool. the creation of that company. Yeah. Uncle Nearest is mentioned over and over and over yeah. again in that book. That was one of the starts of our of our really concrete. Yeah. And what it comes down to at the end of the day is what's the taste in the bottle? Yeah. What's the taste in the bottle? And this is good. Yeah. I, um, I've only had it maybe one or two times before. And those are both at, both at whiskey events when your palate is just completely gone. And oh, I know. That's, that's what I just wrote tough. about this week on the website, being at an event, you're just like, my comparison was falling down like the pit of Sarlacc. Basically, yeah. yeah like, but it's instead of like all these tentacles pulling at your body, it's just fatigue, and then all these different bourbons and rise and flavors from around the world coming at you and attacking your taste buds. Essentially, and, and this is this is this is ethanol. It's, it's yeah. harsh. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, your tongue says, "I'm done." It, so it was part of the process too, by separating yourself. Obviously, not being um, incorporated with Jack Daniels um, as a company is making a whiskey. It's very different from Jack Daniels as well. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think of them as. I, I don't think of them as the same because it's a premium bottle. It's a premium bottle. We, we're starting. A, we're we're at a much different age statement. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that's no. a, that's a big. That's a, one of the big differences. Our mash bills are different. Yeah, and I mean Jack is the American product. When people, it's it's the biggest selling product outside the United States. Oh yeah, and they've done an amazing job. And we couldn't. I was telling you this earlier. We really could not have asked for a better storytelling partner in Jack. When we approached, well. Yeah. When Fawn approached them with what she had found, yeah. the research that she had done, and, and it was it was extensive. Um, the the first thing that they really did was they looked at it and they uh, they opened their arms to her. Mm. If you go to the Jack Daniel Distillery today, there is a family tree of not only the Motlow family and the Jack yeah. Jack's kind of his descendants. He never had children, but also the Green the Green family is highlighted. Wow. And Nathan Green, as Nathan Green is mentioned in their tour, as as somebody who was a part of the creation of that brand. It's cool. In a way that is authentic and doesn't detract from Jack. No. And doesn't attract, detract from what they're doing. Because uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're really experiencing a, a, different, a different world in spirits. Yeah. We don't have... I was just working for a company, Romano Beverage, for people who are in their late 50s and their 60s, they really had their heydays in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And they would even say it themselves, the way that the market and the way that consumption has changed from when they were selling spirits and wine to how we're wow. selling it today is just so di- so drastically yeah, different. It's a completely different picture. And we were, we were talking about that yesterday on the podcast with Mike, um, just about how his neighborhood and little village, how it's changed throughout the 40 years of when his parents opened the store and how they have to adjust. And what he's finding through his markets is um, being in a predominant Mexican neighborhood. And you think on the stereotypes of like us being the purchasers of craft, being two white guys um, that are like in our early 30s. No, it's not. They're uh, the Mexican neighborhood. They want the craft beer. They want the good whiskeys. They want the amazing tequila mezcal collection that he has there as well. Yeah. So they're honoring both those traditions and new modern traditions that are happening right now. Like we said earlier, we are in a time with such an educated consumer body. Yeah. They know what they like. Yeah. You see a decline in sales, but an increase in premium sales Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where people aren't buying for quantity they're buying for quality yeah. now i mean and it's just changed yeah. so as like how, how do we differ from jack jack has a a pretty extensive line yeah you know they have just they a have, bit they, yeah they have a they have a fair amount of products out there from their gentleman jack to their single barrel to their yeah. sinatra to their to their green label uh from old number seven uh what do we differ we have we're really focusing on the legacy of Uncle Nearest. So yeah. we're creating whiskey that honors that legacy, and we have to do that with incredibly smooth whiskey because he was known for making incredibly smooth whiskey. That's awesome. It, well, and it's kind of bringing it back full circle, too. It's, it seems like you're really happy with this position. Very. I'm very happy. And a lot of it probably has to do with the storytelling aspect. Absolutely. Uh, going back a little bit to how I got from, from there to here. Yeah. Uh, th- uh, this is difficult. And I, I, I was telling you, I was think- I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I really love my job, but mm-hmm. I really love, I love the opportunity that Fawn presented me. I love working with Chuck, who is the guy in my territory who really yeah. assists me. The team that I work with are excited. They range from their mid-20s to their mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just learning so much awesome. from all these people. Um, every day that I don't wake up and... Every day that I wake up and I'm not singing for my job, <laughs> I am sad. Yeah. Every every single day. Mm. And uh, right now, I'm realizing, too, that I'm 
I'm going towards a career in the liquor industry full force. Yeah. And I have to find something that fills the void of what I'm not doing and telling stories, telling good stories, working with intelligent people who are compatible with my line of thinking, my philosophy of my philosophy of consumerism and and let let you be you. Yeah. Honor your strengths. Uh, it it, it really helps, but I do struggle every day (laughs) and it, it, I'm right now I'm in a position too with, with my partner, Nick, uh, who is, who is a vocational musician watching his career and his career grow. And we're talking about what he's doing next. It's a difficult place to be. It's, 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 it's something that I don't think people talk about. I found a new passion in whiskey, but it, it didn't, my dreams didn't change. Mm. They just didn't get realized. Okay. And I have to find new ways to fulfill myself. Yeah. And I mean, I hope I hope as I was speaking about the product and about my, yeah. my job that I really conveyed how, how happy I am. Honestly, no, 100 percent. And that's like the conversation. This is the conversation I wanted to have with you, too, because I know your passion for the spirits industry. And maybe not, it wasn't your first passion, yeah. um, but you bring your heart of music into this industry. It's the only way I can do it. If I, if, I really do. It, it, it's um I don't think that we talk enough about people giving up on something. Yes. We talk a lot about people fulfilling their dreams. We yeah. talk a lot about people finding their dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really talk about the people in this world who, and I think there's a lot of them out there where what they're doing happened at a cost, happened at a sacrifice. The reality of what real life really um, comes out to yeah. be. You know, if, if my, if my, if Chuck or if Fawn, if Sherry, if any of the people I work with at Uncle Nearest who are awesome hear this and think that I'm dogging on what I'm doing, that's not the case. No, you're not at all. No, you're 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 being honest about not only maybe putting your passion of singing of music to the side. You're talking about the replacement of that passion, and that's that's not dishonorable whatsoever to anybody, especially to yourself. Yeah, I I also I don't know if that'll ever be replaced. I'll just have to find ways to cope around it. No. I really I really want to have that conversation a lot more. I think that it's really important, especially in the liquor industry where there's mm. issues of depression, there are issues yeah. of and that's, uh, I'm glad you're bringing this up substance because, abuse. Yeah. We need to have a conversation around how we find happiness in this world and how we find happiness in our jobs. And we have to also be honest when maybe not everything is fulfilled because... I'm experiencing that right now, and it's a really important message for me to get across. No, I think it's a super important. Um, actually, Harrison, after his podcast, we were we kind of were talking about how we didn't go into it as much because he lightly brought up like going to therapy. And after the co- after the conversation um, off mic, we start we talked about um, doing a show. We're going to have a therapist on actually. Oh my god! Who, who used to be a bartender? Everyone should go through therapy. Yeah, just try it. Saved my life. I mean, I'm I'm currently not. Yeah. I probably should. Back in the day, no. I mean, I haven't been in 10, 12 years, but um, it definitely saved my life at the time. Oh, yeah. It's it's not even like, uh, especially in the Midwest, there's a, Mm. there's a, at times I think there can be like an artifice. You grew up in the Midwest where like, you're very polite, you're very kind, (laughs) but sometimes when there are things that are bothering you, it's not necessarily polite or kind to talk about them. Definitely. And I think that we tend to have a culture of... Growing up in the Midwest, you're taught passive-aggressiveness very early on. Yeah. And I don't... 
I don't think that it has to be a significant thing, you know. Mm-mm. No, um, not at all. It can be it, just going to therapy can be really cathartic for lots of reasons. Well, Actually, I think what everyone should do. Weird <laughs> little shout out is called the Artist Way. Okay. Do it if you work as an accountant. Uh-huh. Do it if you're a photographer. Just do it because it's a great way to streamline your way of thinking around what you do. Okay. And and kind of piece together how you how you think how you feel about the the various projects you have in your life yeah it, it, it's really it's geared towards artists okay. it's really geared towards actors if yeah. I'm being honest but it can benefit everyone it gets a little Jesus-y <laughs> but just ignore that if you don't want to <laughs> think about it because her methods are really sound interesting oh yeah. I think when also you separate so if you read the Bible not to get religious too much but when you read the Bible for text and for a um a pathway of life and you separate the religion out of it it's a damn good way to live your life oh yeah i mean if you if you just like look at the various tenets of of community it's it's, it's yeah that's very kind of good things to to live your life by um i am i as a, as i don't know if you experience this with photography but as i was going growing up in the arts um i would often hear some people and they would not always be Professionals, they would not often be teachers, but they would yeah. say things like, "Well, if 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 you're meant to sing, Jesus will make you sing." And I'm, I'm I, and I wanted to say, I think that my forty thousand dollars a year education is going to help me too. And oh, you, know, you the, hope, yeah. The the work you do behind it is going to help you through it. Um, but it really is. It's 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 a great way to just think about what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really, it's important to uh, to look at parts of your day that you're dedicating um, certain things to. Yeah. And that's kind of what I've really come to, like, the last few weeks now with this podcast and putting content on the website and freelance writing for websites as other publications. I just want to dedicate my time and my devotion to that to do something good for myself and hopefully good for other people as well when it comes to, like, this conversation that we're having right now. But I know, like, when you're having those late nights and you're up until 1, 2 in the morning and trying to finish a draft of for a publication, those are the things that are going to make you hopefully succeed. It's not going to be, you know, sitting on your ass watching Netflix, which happens too much too sometimes. So, everyone uh, needs to turn off. Yeah, there is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with rewatching Undateable, dude. Even though it was a bad show, I've been going through Cheers. It's a good show. It's like the fifth time in my life. <laughs> awesome. Well, is there anything else? Yeah, you want to add about the company or kind of what you have going on next week with Whiskey Week? You know, I actually want to talk about Sherry a little bit. Yeah, please go. Uh, uh, Fawn Weaver was looking into the story of Uncle Nearest in Lynchburg, uh-huh. and there was a lot of people who did not like this strange woman and her husband looking into their history, not okay. really knowing what she would find, not, not really knowing how she would how she would report was this her on original it. idea of starting the distillery was to- sort of. So okay. she actually started she started this with chasing the story. She had no real intentions mm. of creating a distillery. Um, it's a bold move. It is a it is a bold move. She had no real intentions of doing it initially. Okay. As she was researching the story, she learned a lot about his, uh, obviously his legacy and what he did. Um, but at one point in this, and I'm, I'll, t- I'll probably tell it vaguely and maybe a little wrong, but at one point, while she's in Lynchburg with her husband, um, a woman calls or finds her, comes up to her and says, you know, the farm where Nathan Green and Jack lived is up for sale. And I'm a real estate agent. Wow. Do you want to see it? Do you want to go look, talk to them about maybe buying it? And she said, sure. 
Why not? Why not? I mean, that's one way to, what's the way to do research is to go to the place, you know, to be in the yeah. space where they were, which we actually now own. That farm is the farmhouse on our bottle. Nice. Yeah. So as they're driving to the farmhouse, the way that Fawn told it colloquially, the way she just like kind of told us when we were together, um, Sherry at one point said, well, if you ever want to make a whiskey, I'll make you a whiskey. And Fawn said, okay, great, that sounds really great. And, and is thinking to herself, who the hell is yeah. this real estate agent who wants to make me whiskey? It turns out it was <laughs> Sherry so Moore, funny. whose career was really made as the head of whiskey operations at Jack Daniel. Okay. Yeah. Huh. She's even, her, her family lineage is even loosely attached to the, to the Jack lineage. So she is the person who's making our whiskey. She's been... Talking to her, the first time I met her, it was just so fascinating. She was talking about, you know, what what they were experimenting yeah. with at Jack, like like sherry cask finishing back yeah. in the seventies and eighties. Really, that's crazy. Yeah, really. It you is. know, the things that huh. she did bef- that are pretty common nowadays with with spirits. Maybe not always with whiskey, but you know, just in general, like finishing sherry casks, putting other staves yeah. uh, staves in the in the barrel with it, just doing all these different things. And she was a part of that that legacy so that's who will be here next week she is uh she's really awesome and uh, definitely a, a pioneer in the industry maybe we can get her on for like a quick 15 minute podcast um Ian, other than that awesome thanks for coming on uh is there anything you want to give a shout out to any handles anything like that on the social media yeah uh hashtag uncle nearest hashtag nathan green hashtag whiskey family definitely if you're enjoying uncle nearest let us know because we were, we're looking for storytelling partners cool it's a good product and um i'd encourage everybody to go out there what is it on the shelves selling for these days uh between 50 and 55 not a bad price um obviously you can get some younger juice from other other companies um around that price range too that are worth trying so i definitely go out there and try this whiskey it's kind of uh, obviously like ian said more of around that 9 to 11 year mark 9 to 11 year blend and one more plug our single barrels on the shelf now it's an 11 year bottle cast strength you're looking around 112 115 cool. proof yeah uh, that's uh, that's that price tag is one one twenty ish. There you go. Well, that's the premium spots in the liquor store shelves. Once again, guys, thanks for hanging out with us. And as we always do on the end of this podcast, cheers. Cheers.